Hello world and Mars and Hi. Venus. Welcome to Centered Subject, <laughs> <laughs> the interplanetary edition. Um, yeah. Space. Oh, space. Well, we're going to speak about space, actually. Not that kind of space, but we could talk about that space. Just too, briefly, want to. I just want to note that I overheard this interview with a formerly Republican Senate. He was formerly he was a um, Republican congressman, but now um, he heads fundraising for NASA. I think. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he's very enthusiastic about going back to the moon because oh, that's sort of the prep area for us going to Mars. Oh man! Anyway, just to set that aside. How old was he? Because remember my theory that most he was not old. No, no, he was not old. No, he he actually spoke poignantly about how he was not around when. Um, the moon landing happened, and I suppose he wishes for something of that sort to happen in his lifetime. And yeah, and he he spoke about you know his memory being the challenger, mm, right? I remember that too. You know, which is sort of the opposite, the tragic. Huh. So, did he personally want to go to the moon, or just like? I think I guess he wants other people to go to the moon, <laughs> but he wants to be present on the internet when that happens. Yeah. I'm assuming, although perhaps perhaps he might want to do it, but he didn't want to. Admit it on radio. It was on NPR. Senators to the moon. Senators to the moon. All of them, please. Export them. Make them work in the mines. I think that would do well. If we could send our government to the moon briefly and they could do their work there, I think they would, you know. It'll give them a sense of perspective, I would say. Yeah, I think that's what they need. I think they're getting a little weird. They need to have zero gravity for a bit. Very good point. We could just put them all up, the entire government up into on one of those zero gravity things. And then they would just jostle around enough together. You know, they could bounce into each other and just giggle. Yeah, and they would have to form alliances because, you know, just sort of um, link up. Um, to right. be sure, you know, to catch the toothpaste and right. Um, so this reminds me a bit of the concept of the third place, which in studying place placiality um, for this episode, I came across this concept of the third place, which is um, a place where people of different views can come together, like a community center or a park bench or something. And it's there's all this criteria for it in like the study of place and philosophy. And so it's sort of like a neutral space where people come together in the world. So that could be this zero gravity chamber up um, maybe on an airplane for the government could be a really nice place Mm. for them to come together and cross cross boundaries and, you know, relate to one another as physical beings. Yeah. Yeah. It's a third place in space for them. I also have an example um, a perfect example of that third space, actually. I was driving earlier today and um, in Pasadena, and I caught a glimpse of a sort of a charming, idyllic scene underneath a tree of two people with their heads bent down, and um, the man had his arm on the woman's shoulder, and it was just a very sweet scene, and I thought they were praying together, you know, at like 11 in the morning, and then I realized they were looking at a phone together. Oh, yeah, so that was fascinating. The third place, of yeah, their space. Yeah, third place. Well, there's also weirdly this. So there's like a corollary theory on the Wikipedia article. This is where I got it. This is legit philosophy, though. It's not just not me being properly like, scholarly, Jane. Sorry, <laughs> I'm not Wikipedia. I oh was sent God. there by an actual PhD philosopher. I will credit myself with that. You can look it up. I will credit him. And one of the concepts is third space. So there's third place, which is a physical place, like a, you know, community center or a library or a bench or whatever. And then third space is this new concept. It's like more postmodern where the internet is included. So it could be, you know, a chat room for people of, you know, some sort of positionality like from across the world. So like, you know, LGBT teens in... Um, small towns can meet, you know, online and have this third space. So it's right. uh, represented, you know, it's like nice. So in the place movement, there's kind of, and this philosopher I was talking to kind of has an anti-internet um, space uh, attitude and wants things to be embodied and emplaced and everything. And so, but the third space was what those people out of the tree were doing. In a way, they were like sharing physical space, but also kind of having the internet as part of their shared space. Right. So I don't think the boundaries are that clear. You know, that's my point with the whole thing. Well, I think they are, they do overlap, but I, well, I do think that wishing for an embodied physicality in this day and age is just not 
right. <laughs> not realistic. Um, yeah. But I support Brian. It's uh, our mutual friend. Yeah, he studies the uncanny, the uncanny nature of place. It's difficult. It's difficult to remove from life and then to like conceptualize. Well, I mean, it's definitely there's so many things about our kind of mediated existence that are upsetting and um, feel intangible and solitary. Um, I follow this meme account on um, Instagram that's um, called Berlin scene club memes or no Berlin club memes. And so there is something today, um, sort of a green image and the caption was not a cell phone in sight, just people living in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and just how funny that is. Yeah. Because it's not an, you know, that's an impossible idea. Right. Um, that would just not happen. Right. I like the fact that it was just the green field as well. You know, there was sort of no image. Usually they do, you know, it's a meme account. So usually it would be a, a photo of someone yeah. or a person, you know. And, right. But this time it was just a strange green space. Um, I guess the <laughs> like presence of everyone being maybe alive and there. Um, yeah. It's quite funny. It's a good account if you dream of <laughs> going to Berlin. Were there people on the green? No, no. It's just the green oh, square and then the caption. That's funny. Yeah. It oh, was just, I love it. It was just that. It was just everyone was so present, you know, that there's nothing to, to portray right. in the image in a way. Right. You know, that's how I felt about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that what happens when people are meditating using a phone app as the center? It's like you travel by way of the phone to the other side of complete, you know, oneness. So it's like I the suppose. phone is is the source of the of the complete presence or something. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess that feeling diminishes if you don't use headphones that are attached to the phone. But I just lost one of my earpods, which is tragic. Oh yeah, what's that like? I don't. I've never had those kinds, so I don't know what it feels like. I'm disorienting, and then I couldn't find. Um, yeah, I'm just so used to having a soundtrack as I right. go about my day, and um, I tried listening to just the left one, <laughs> but that was even more disorienting. Um, so I gave up, and then yeah. I found the the one the headphones that are tethered, you know, to the machine, and it's a really different feeling because I forgot about the kind of the weight of the phone, or that I have to handle it, you know. So oh, wow. it was just because usually it just it really just seems like a kind of an ephemeral cloud of music that surrounds my so head. So I love I love that we're just taking some time on our on our ephemeral uh, podcast to. For me to just figure out how these earbud things work. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody slow down. No, wait. So, like, you do you tap it on your ear? Yeah. Yeah. I tap it in my ear um, if I need to make a note or, like, you know, flash forward. Um, That's like one step even away from the platiality of the phone itself. Oh, my God. I I didn't know that. It's an extended, it's sort of another step towards the phone, but not, you know, right? Not, Not tethered. But yeah, I've been I've been managing. I guess I'll figure out. Um, I'll go go get another pod or something. I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. It has not been pleasant. I'll say that. Right. Um. So one the re, the place that I came from to get to thinking about this was reading this article. Um. That a lot of people have read because I've been talking about it, and a lot of people are. It's like really blown everyone's mind. It's just about Amazon nomads, and then there was Amazon Prime Day. Recently, yeah, which I just have to point out that it was actually a forty-eight hour day. Was it? <laughs> which really? always shocks it me. It's like Amazon Prime Day now forty-eight hours, and I was like, oh, uh, give it to, <laughs> give it geez. to, give it to Amazon. Oh, what is that? What is that idiom? Let it give it to Amazon to extend the astrological. Yeah, right. No, the planetary alignment by extending yeah. the day by another 24 hours. They w- that probably will happen. They don't care. That's just no, going to be what it is Move now. the earth so you can shop more. But yeah, yeah you were so, I saw that article, the nomads travel to America's Walmarts to stock Amazon's shelf. Yeah. Kind of immediated yeah. sellers. Um, right. Yeah. And just like how they just Hunting. drive everywhere. And hunt. Yeah, and yeah. throughout sort of these businesses that are going out of business uh, yeah. like Toys R Us and other basically brick and mortar 
commercial spaces that are that are kind of dying and not no longer being replenished so they kind of loot it essentially for rarities and then present them as internet and they have an app that they walk around or that they drive around with that will tell them which products are going for the most so they're specifically Mm -hmm. um, searching for certain products or they'll go around like an existing target or an existing whatever store that's not going out of business and they'll just go through the discount bin and look for these like really high priced items and then sell them on Amazon because um, a lot of these things that make a lot of money for Amazon and the people who sell them are like weird niche items and discontinued items, partially because our product cycle goes so quickly. Yes. I was about to say, if you, if you get attached to something, yeah, you better, you better relinquish it. It will run out. Yeah. Yeah. Like new stuff gets, or, or old brands are getting that people are really, um, connected to go out of go out of favor or they just stop making them so then they become really or old old items also often get fetishized as well yeah so or oh the the sad one that really that made a lot of sense to me because I was feeling kind of judgmental and trying not to do about this whole article and just where we are as a society and what this means for us and just uh, it just brought up a whole lot for me um and probably a lot of people uh but uh, was the thing where, like, a child uh, with a neurodiverse situation like autism or um, some psychological issues or attachments um, could be really into one specific food or one specific product? Or, like, they talked about a kid uh, with special needs who, like, had this one cup that they used every day. I think they were an older person, actually. They were an older person with special needs, and their cup broke. And then they were just, like, with you know, totally forlorn, and they couldn't deal because they didn't have this cup. So the, like, holy grail of the Amazon searching person, like, who found this random cup, you know, that seemed kind of nice because there's something about the way the store cycle has worked now where – I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've noticed that just there's – you can tell the brick-and-mortar stores are less – um, successful, certain types of them. And there's just less products in the world and you can't find the same types of things. I've noticed this in like a small way here and there where things aren't quite the same. Right. Well, I think there's just two different things, you know, they're kind of the artisanal, there's a brick and mortar kind of artisanal shops that could do quite well just because they operate on a, you know, it's not a mass appeal, but rather the exclusivity is what's attractive. Um, You know, it's like handmade things and like beautifully designed things and um, kind of the opposite of this department stores, um, which, which is going to, it's, I feel like it's the, these kind of large scale chains that are affected in a particular way. I mean, I think in general, it's just difficult to sell things in, IRL, you know, because it's everyone yeah. is so networked and um, right. doesn't want to leave the house or just the comfort or wherever, you know, just so much easier. And it's so easy to get kind of lured into the image and the experience of what it might be if you just see it um, rather yeah. than experience it because then right. it's just sort of a promise of a of that life that you... Yeah, sense. I mean, when we buy like that, do we really buy... A, yeah. Do we really buy anything in the same way that we used to buy things? It's an interesting... Like, I can't... I'm confused about how to buy clothes now because it feels like a lot of clothes buying needs to be done online. And I consider buying clothes online all the time. I'm always looking at clothes, especially like on Instagram. Like those ads work really well on me. I've never actually bought anything, but I look at the pictures constantly. Hello, marketer. Or like, hello, these industries. Like I'm admitting it that I'm really interested in it. But I can't do it because I don't want to, like, send it back. Yeah. You know? And they're all over $100. It's just, like, the amount of labor. And the, yeah. there's something about how how it is so conceptual. and the- Yeah. It's also interesting how now production, you know, whereas before, um, you know, the department store priced itself. Or these kind of large, large-scale stores, they priced themselves on offering every client, you know? So on the plenty and the yeah. multitude and now um you think of these companies they will often specialize especially the, the ones that are marketed through instagram i feel like those are often really niche yeah and it will be like the perfect t-shirt that you were searching for and they you know and then they're just like this 80 dollars t-shirt that you were searching for your whole Hello. life Hello. and now you found it you know and just that or like you know there's just something about taking an object and then describing it in this way that just seems yeah. to be personalized. But, I mean, objects, as you know, like, are powerful things. And I think what there's this kind of historic study, like, new materiality, you know, which just looks at 
essentially history or like an anthropological approach through objects and what they represent mm-hmm. in their history. So, I mean, it's, yeah. it's definitely a part of our yeah, it's like human cachet. Right. And there's something about, I noticed myself, so Topshop, um, I really like going to Topshop in New York. I can't, I actually don't like going to, to clothing stores, like stores in general. I don't. I don't go. I don't know if I do, but it, I get kind of panic attacks. <laughs> me too, but it's one of my favorite things to do alone in New York. Um, but uh, after work, so like I have all these situations. It's a very New York situation where it's like after mm. it used to be this way, where after New after I would get out of work here, um, I would be really out of it. And I see I'm a teacher, so I would have to get proper clothes that I could wear out, but I could also wear you know, to teach the next day, you know, Mm. and I would get paid in these chunks of money and then I would end up like not having any money later. So I'd be like, okay, well I have to look professional. And sometimes I would do that and it would work really well and I felt great and it really didn't help me. So I was into it. Um, but I had this whole system where I would go and I would, I mean, I'm sure we all do and have this way of thinking about like my future self and my ideal self and who do I want to be next mm, year and, sure. and this vision envisioning, you know, I would go down to like, I want to so just get the face app and see. I know. No, it was, it was really fun. And if they could, the internet could help me with this would be great, but I would get these really specific images, you know, it'd be like yeah. Georgia O'Keefe, but it, you know, 30 and only in white, not in black. You know, it's like this very specific look. Like the Georgia O'Keeffe painting, like a flower? No, or like you mean how she looked? Clothes. Okay. Because I also like the idea of just interpreting her yeah. paintings as an That's, outfit. That could, you know, that could be yeah. nice. These are both good things. I, you know, look, this is a good lookbook. Um, hmm. So that was my whole thing. And I would go out and I would be like, okay, is this the image that, is this this idea? Like I would have, in every season, I would come up with this like look that I was going to go for. And then it was pretty easy to come up with the look. I don't know where I would get it. I would just stare at people in town and then think about just like entertain myself with these ideas. It's so fun. Mm -hmm. And then I would go into stores and try stuff on. And some things happen. There's, it's, I think there's something like there aren't as, I don't really ever like the clothes in stores. I feel like the quality is much lower because of this, the internet and then the quality of, it's true, the quality of the clothes online is like sure. shot way up. And oh, I really? Think I, oh, I don't yeah. know. Or like, you know, it's the $80, it's a high quality $80 t-shirt. It's like, that's what's happened. And I don't, it's probably, probably half of them are high quality. You never know because you can't, there's no texture, you know? So it's just, there's no texture online and everything always seems soft and beautiful. Yeah. But, I don't know. Mm Yeah. So yeah, I had this sense, you know, I had this strong sense in the last couple years that, and I have way less money because I'm in grad school. So I just was just like, you know, something's wrong with these stores. There's not really stuff for me. What's going on? I don't want to try anything on. I'm not doing my usual thing. I'm ready to drop 200 bucks right now. Like I just, I can't do it. Like what's going on. And then they, they closed Topshop and there was nobody like nobody said anything about it. I didn't know. Like it wasn't like my friends. No. Also, nobody in New York will tell you where they got anything. It's a secret. I don't know if this is true in your life, <laughs> but they will. It's a people will just make stuff up. Yeah, I don't uh, ask. I, yeah, <laughs> I I do because I don't give a shit. You know, but like I don't know. Just, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Belgium. They always say that. I say Walmart. Good, badass. You don't give a shit. Yeah, um. but yeah and it was closed and then I was like it was like confirmation for some reason of something and then I started looking into it and I read all these articles and it's like yeah it really is happening though I do think that like wait what is happening the quality of clothes going down I lost it that the the brick and mortars are closing oh I mean it's I mean it's kind of obvious no I mean I think yeah it's just Amazon what's interesting I think is Amazon is it's almost like we're going through like another centennial repeat because you know around like 20th late 20th century late 19th century Sears um was Mm. really this grand success and that's essentially a catalog um where they would sell anything you know from houses you could make you know get these kind of prefab um proportioned houses to like underwear and um you know so it was just this kind of shipping industry that's how people shopped Mm -hmm. through catalog and amazon in a way is is, but it's not dissimilar right right no. Oh, um, actually, I did have a. I really have been wanting to learn more about this person. Um, but when you were t- 
talking about, oh, when you sent me that article about the Amazon, the Walmart restocking Amazon, I remembered um, an art- architect that I've sort of peripherally read about um, when I was, I was like listening to an interview by Frank Gehry last year. And, um, and then I could have looked him up. And then I saw when his first job was working for an architect named Victor Gruen um, here in LA in like 1950s. And so I was, you know, I was curious about this Victor character. I haven't really, haven't really heard about him. Mm-hmm. So I looked him up, and it turns out that he was an Austrian Jew that, um, you know, fled Vienna in like 1939, and he moved to um, to the States. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of considered to be the father of the mall, you know, just the kind of ubiquitous suburban mall. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting about him is that he, you know, when he left the left Vienna he was I think he was like um maybe like 36 or something and the whole entire time that he was um an adult in Austria he was an active socialist and he had this so socialist I think it was like a socialist this cabaret in which he, um he was an architect but then he was his kind of main passion was um performing these kind of comedic socialist skits really? in his socialist cabarets yes and so he was completely devout um socialist and then he moved to the states and he became kind of a mall builder he he sort of translated his you know the idea of certain ideas from socialism of kind of i think it became something about social connections Mm. i mean i think he almost arrived at it by somewhat of an accident you know where he sort of he landed in the states and he landed in new york and he had to find a job and kind of the first jobs he got was just redesigning the storefronts and he came up with this idea of an kind of opening up the store, essentially making the yeah. store the vitrine um, by adding glass, by kind of applying performative um, and yeah. kind of psychological tactics mm-hmm. to displaying just certain choice items. You know, so he sort yeah. of developed that idea. And then kind of it went further, you know, if he got into into this kind of consumption architecture, he was also frustrated by living in the States and um, by kind of a lack of social space. And he essentially, he, he did a lot of writing. And, and essentially, he kind of posited the space of consumption, the, like the mall where you enjoy yourself, um, you enjoy the freedom that you've earned after you know World War II um, mm. by kind of consuming and socializing in the mall is the space for that yeah it's like almost like a safety too yeah. because it's all under one roof and right weird. well i mean some of them were also these outdoor spaces you right know, kind of like um yeah ubiquitous but yeah just a really interesting story i thought how how seamless it seemed that transition you know from mm-hmm. he just he blended the concepts i want to know what his performances were like well <laughs> one performance was he was um well, there was a little description um, in Vienna. You know, he he was accused of not like weighing his words, the weight of his words, and then he did this performance where he literally weighed his words. Oh, which I thought was really nice. I oh. love a pun. Um, I'm gonna steal that someday. No, That's it's so interesting. Nice. But I just yeah. um, I've been kind of obsessively screenshotting the the book um, about him. Yeah. So um, here's some samples from reviews um, of Northland, which was, um, I guess, the first of the shopping malls that Gruen was able to bring about into the world. Mm -hmm. So someone comments, He wondered if history had ever seen a secular building that has offered a chance to express so much of the life of the community and so many aspects of community life. And then another one with um, this journalist. She informed the readers of Ladies Home Journal of this most ambitious of uh, mercantile centers in America or in the world. When the passenger had left the parking lot, he is in a shopper's paradise. Thompson praised Gruen's design for being extremely practical and perfectly beautiful. Further, the shopping center represented a model of enlightened planning and social cooperation. In an enthusiastic first-person testimonial, Thompson related how she shopped for six hours straight without feeling more than a momentary fatigue when I sat on a bench in the bright spring sunshine <laughs> with auditoriums, infirmary, <laughs> to go to the infirmary, um, mm. post office, Sounds fun. bank and restaurant. 
Northland is far more than a shopping center. Yeah. It is. It's a dreamland. It's such a dreamland. Oh, my Don't God. Don't you remember that? So I was watching Stranger Things, and that was the big thing. Oh. It was all about being in a mall. And yeah. I used, like, I hate malls. And I, my whole identity was, like, built up around hating malls. But then I just had this big moment where I was I really missed Topshop, and then I missed this whole idea yeah. of Broadway Lafayette. You wanted to, to shop for six hours without feeling a fatigue. I kind of am that lady on the bench. You know, I've been her before. And I don't know how to, how to be that lady on the bench on my phone. Like, that doesn't exist for me. And mm, I'm not, I'm I'm not ready. I almost, I know, I almost, like, ask my teenage students, like, what they do. I'm pretty sure they go to malls or they do something. But in the show, it brought back, and I'm sure that's the whole point of why they did this in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, like, brought back all this nostalgia. Right. Yeah, but I do remember that. I haven't seen. Um, I haven't seen the third season. I think I haven't seen it. I saw the first one. I remember there was a little bit of that kind of the eighties um, social yeah. social space of the mall. And I mean, I was okay with it when I first watched it. But as I've been thinking about place and and this change and those poor nomads all by themselves, um, and the dream of the mall. And this is kind of what you know that those quotes and kind of the dream that that the performative aspect of it, I think, is really represented in the show. And mm-hmm. in the early '80s mall, you did have this sense that everything is here for you. It's a playland for teenagers. Like if you're 13, and that's the beauty of it. That I think I'm really scared for losing in our culture. That it's there's no grownups anywhere that are taking care of you know that are watching you. You have this conceptual space that you can exist in where teenagers exist anyway, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, they're just in a social space and they're, they're negotiating who they are and who they're going to be. Right. And they just want freedom and enjoy and like, you know, enjoyment. And well, it's just odd that the mall is that space because I mean, that is just unique to American urban planning. I would say, Mm -hmm. you know, with the exception of New York, suburban planning, planning, right. When there's like no social plaza, there's no social space to interact. And so you, you resort to these kind of commercial institutions yeah. that provide that, that is not a public space. It's ideal for kids because it's a safe space. Semi-controlled. Yeah. And then it is about kids, you know, that age do like to buy stuff and show off their stuff if they have it or like wish to have an identity. You know, there are all these different type of stores that were just geared completely to kids uh, to teenagers, yeah. disposable incomes and stuff. I don't know if you experienced that in the same way that no. I... It was a thing, you know? When I was 13, I was, you know, I was in Belarus and it was pretty post-Soviet and there were no malls, but the, kind of the streetscape with, with the space where we engaged. How did young people use this space, I guess? Like, what was the social space well, for young Well, I think one of the ways, um, there were certain things, you know, school and the kind of after school around the school spaces in Soviet Union kind of designing the public space was a really big part of the intention. So there were just right. a lot of these kind of parks um, and kind of built-in environments, you know, which made space relatable, kind of more accessible. Yeah. Uh, and then there would be, I mean, I guess as far as commercial spaces, usually there would be a, like a big grocery store and usually they would have a little cafe. So right. maybe we'd just go there to drink soda. But also people hung out, so it's, you know, it's apartment building land and teenagers would hang out in these um, entryways, basically. Yeah. Um, of the apartment. So, you know, that right. way you can you just see each other. As yeah. you come out of the apartment, and or you sort of right. huddle inside the building and scare the adults and yeah. make out, make out, and the like. That was a big, right. gross thing. I think like just sitting, um, just past the entryway and in the darkness, you know, it was yeah. funny. Or in the roof, the roofs of buildings as well. So I mean, you kind of just adapt, you know, you just adapt to a space you don't really need, and arguably there was a lot more freedom, um, and of course the parks and such as well. Right. I mean, there's like the codified and teenagers kind of make me think about this too, like the codified space that's okay and sanctioned by people. And then the secret space, yeah, you know, and the self-defined space, which is kind of dangerous and beautiful in its own way. And they're really good at doing that. We would go into the, um, the sewers (laughs) in the suburbs. Yeah. It was kind of fun because, yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was great. I'm so glad Deep I... Deep into the friends. infrastructure, like, really. Man. But it's like kind of the stranger things in a way, you know? Who knows? Yeah. Where, 
I'm so glad I had these. I had some freaky friends when I was that age, you know, because like it's harder today, I think, because everyone is tracked on their phone. Yeah, you could see where people are. It's a little depressing. They're like, "What are you doing in the sewer? Come on, nothing at all. I wasn't even drinking, you know, just like Mm. being alarmed and feeling cool, you know, (laughs) and um and like sliding down roofs. There was a lot of that, but it was extra fun. Yeah, to use space. With your friend, it was just because your social space defined everything. Right, there, nothing was quite real, you know. So right, I agree. Yeah, yeah. So you wanted to be on a roof and underground and and messing with you know the boundaries of the mall or the boundaries of the building, you know. And yeah, it was really fun and exciting. And you were like, oh, this is what it means to not be a kid anymore. Somehow, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to introduce this concept, which I'm pretty excited about. It's like the origin of the concept of the uncanny, which is something that we've talked about a little bit with technology, um, comes from this word, umheimlichkeit, from the German and the philosopher Heidegger. This is where this came from. Heidegger sucks. I know, I know. But he was a part of what, you know, phenomenology, one of the people that that was important in the beginning of phenomenology. And so that's kind of where they took, took these concepts and then you can stop everything else and, you know, put it in a container and throw it in the ocean. Um, but the concept of the uncanny that he, it comes from this. So it's the, it, which that word means not at homeness. Mm-hmm. So it comes from the concept of home, but not at home. So the uncanny Valley and the idea of something not it's not being at home. It means that it's not, it's foreign. It's like from far away, you know? So like a human face or body is home, I guess, in that way. And then the non-human is the not at homeness. But it also can be in this theory applied to a space. So like maybe a really alienating space or, you know, like I feel like there's something about that Amazon nomad going, you know, all by themselves in a really uncomfortable or comfortable, mm. um, you know, minivan or whatever filled with products and going from store to store that they're just existing in this comfortably in this not at homeness. you know, they've made a business and a life of traversing the uncanny. Right. Um, I mean, there are a lot of people that traditionally have lived in those ways as well. That's you true. Know, that the gleaners. The yeah, the there's gleaners that. or just, you know, they're the harbordashers, you know, that would travel mm-hmm. from A to B or yeah. the kind of the traveling salesman, you know, that's just a... Right, right. A way, a, genre. a way of doing mm-hmm. right. A way of doing things. The indigenous peoples as well that follow the weather with objects. Right. I don't know. I can't think it's okay. There's something about it that is so... Maybe it's just the amount of stuff and the fact that those people, and maybe that's always been true though, actually of the like traveling salesman, but of the, the, there's just so much stuff. There's so much stuff and there's so much competition and it's so difficult for them to make any money, Hmm. you know, and they have their actual, it's a lot like the Amazon workers, you know, it's so difficult to make an actual lived wage, you know, to have a reasonable life of any sort that they have, and they have so little power in that, you know, and maybe that's just more about the way our economy works and the way Amazon works right now than anything. But mm. I know it was hard for those traveling salesmen, but was it as hard as it is, you know, for the Amazon workers? I guess so. I mean, part of it is also, okay. I mean, it just depends on everyone's situation, but I suppose some could be resorting to that if they can't afford housing, you know, so maybe you, yeah. just, you just live from your van, possibly. Um, One guy said he loves it. Yeah, some people really like it, I think. Because it's sort of a collector's, um, the desire to collect, you know, or just mm-hmm. museums and collections right. and Kunstkamera, all that stuff. I feel like some people just like to accumulate objects. And we do have such a such a passion for objects right now in our world like that's and I think right. there's just something about that in in that book about Victor Grun or, or his, in his writing about how the love of shopping is a kind of he sort of saw it as something that really made people happy shopping mm-hmm. you know um, and I think there's really a belief in that still even though some people disavow consumerism mm-hmm. in favor of minimalism but that I think not necessarily mean that they don't purchase anything or maybe some do but they just purchase these choice objects but 
Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so I guess um, they're participating in this object adoration, materiality, religion yeah. that we live in. Yeah, they're the extreme. Yeah. <laughs> the extreme version or workers. Yeah, I feel weird about objects actually as um, as an artist and they make sculpture mm. often. So I, I've recently been thinking about just that idea of making you know, adding more objects mm. to the world. I also feel somewhat conscious of the the sheer mass of stuff. And obviously the environmental crisis is right. exacerbated by, by the notion of waste. Mm-hmm. Not the notion, but the presence of so much waste and unrecyclables. I've been struggling with that idea of adding objects, making more things. I've been trying to like remake remake things out of existing yeah. things somewhat like some you know some found objects with a little dishampian right. but i guess like one thing what i use or my excuse is that but i don't know if it's an excuse actually now that i think about it but my excuse is that they're not practical you know right i think they're the objects that have fetishized the most also pretend to be useful you know, they're mm-hmm. like, you buy this T-shirt, it's perfect, it will feel so good in your body, you help, you'll have a great life. Or buy this phone, you'll be so efficient, you know. So it's just a lie. All of these stories are just something that sells or mm. that we want to believe because we do need some sort of blueprint for existence. So I think I excuse my objects <laughs> in some way for not for not promising a tale of happiness, you know, but yeah. for just existing as creatures. But I still don't really know if that's a good enough excuse. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I excuse your objects. Thanks. Because they're good. They're cool. <laughs> Thank you. And beautiful. And they're, you know, often an interesting commentary on other objects, you right. know, they're in conversation. Yeah. Nor are they, you know, giant, horrible plastic, you know, things necessarily. Yeah. Or if they are, then that's usually like something that exists already and that I've just modified. I do have a giant plastic object that's hanging at a show that just opened. But <laughs> Hello, show. Hello, show. Hello, object. Mm, objects. But they're so also filled with character objects. There's a Buddhist philosopher guy that I am a fan of, and he has a shopping addiction, and he oh, has all really? sorts of other addictions. <laughs> he, he does. Oh. It's like he talks about he it. He talks well, about it. Okay. What does he shop for? Well, he was... Uh, like a drug addict for a lot of years oh. and then he went he got sober oh. so he's totally sober now but I think anybody who's sober is really worried that they're gonna fall off the wagon they need an addiction so he yeah. notices his other addictions and he tries to forgive himself but I think partly he talks about them as a way to <laughs> so he's addicted to buying hoodies and he <gasps> talks about it all the time <laughs> amazing addiction I like yeah. how specific it is it's only specific though addictions I guess they are right well he talks about it and I think that's really I think that's a really interesting thing and I've noticed it in myself and part of the work that he talks about doing uh, with it you know is that any addiction is um is just sort of what we do when we want to cover over a feeling that we're uncomfortable with. Mm. But we oftentimes don't even realize that we're having the feeling because our physical awareness is so low. So we just feel like a low level hum of discomfort. Mm -hmm. And then we want to eat or we want to drink or we want to do drugs or we want to buy stuff. We want a dopamine hit. And it's just like physiological. It's not a big deal. And it's really lovely because like some of it, I was cooking the other day and I was thinking about this, that the eating thing is like, well, we feel lonely or we feel like we want to commune. And when our memory, this is his theory, his our memory is that we, you know, remember being cooked for and that made us feel better. So we just go from, I feel sad or lonely or I, you know, want to have this moment and I want to eat. And that's just like this one to two. Yeah. Yeah. And then this, the buying stuff, you know, is I don't know who I am or I don't know what I'm doing or yeah. I feel empty. You know, we don't sit yeah. with the moment of empty. And if we can sit with the moment of empty. Very hard. It's really hard. It's the hardest thing to do, yeah. you know. you Because we want to distract so easy now to get distracted as well. You yeah. just need to point to the to the right. And our phones know that we're doing this. And that's what's mm. really annoying about it and the store knows too but there's something about having feet on the you know on the ground on the ground though a store is is also set up to be really um you know what it's a play what do we call it it's a fantasy land it's supposed to kind of carry you into a 
dopamine land of enjoyment and for six hours, you know, so much so that you want to sit on a bench and like take it in. I don't know. I guess they're kind of the same if I think about it in that way. But, um, so like the theory that he proposes, which I admit is very hard, but I've done it a couple of times and it's not so bad is, is, yeah, it's like, if you have the strong urge to kind of fill up yourself with something or some sense of black, it's like, slow it down and, think of, uh, think of what's going on if it's feeling really extreme or, or, you know, how can you fill it in an adaptive way and in like a good way? And then it's sort of this process of caring, parenting yourself or like caring for yourself in that moment to slow it down. It's just about slowing it down instead of just like filling up that because it's like a fear that happens, you know? Yes, I do know. I do know. I know it's for me, it's hard right now because I don't have any money and I feel I almost have this opposite addiction where it's like oh, no we need to start a patreon <laughs> so <you have> uh, money <laughs> i know but okay. but i'm addicted to not spending money which i think is also bad i think it's great it is okay you support me well i also really need you know i also have problems where i have to i should i'm gonna work on a gleaner's method mm. a more of a gleaner's method and less of a you know, Amazon nomad method or less of a mall method of developing my next season's wardrobe, I suppose. So would you mean sort of going to swaps, you mean? Or yeah. just looking through what you already have? I find that actually, for me, right. just looking through what I already have and yeah. is kind of, Thinking of in a way, it. a shopping experience because then I, I constantly unearth objects. Yeah. You know, I just realized this concept when you said that, you know, of this sense of like, the shopping thing is also a sense of lack, but then if we can manage the sense of lack, uh, because actually if we can manage the sense of lack, then we look at what we have and we have no lack. We actually have no. a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's exactly that because we really have lots. And I think the cycle, that sort of purchasing cycle, as you mentioned earlier, Nino, because there's the, you're constantly inundated by the new season, the new fashion of this two months or three months. But right. That's also, like, not true. Yeah. You know, and I feel like things repeat, you know. There's, like, high-waist trousers three years ago, and then it was that. Then now it's back. You know, it's just just hold on to the trousers. I know. Extend them. I've I've really enjoyed coming all the way around the other side, as I said before, with my big shoes, man. I was like, I still have these big shoes. Yeah. Have you ever noticed that, because I try to become aware of it now in the new fashion cycle, that, like, you suddenly feel like you desire a certain color? You're like, oh, I really want to have a thing in this color. And then you look it up and you're like, oh, no, that was the chosen color mm. that the fashion industry decided I was. they were going to get me to want. And they did it. Like, how did they make me want that color? Not that that's bad, because maybe that's fine. But you I know. think my palette really shrank the last couple of years. I think it's like yeah. pink, what is black, yeah. white, gray, and a kind of taupe. Taupe. And then I have a lot of clear... Like I like clear or pink footwear, so I, I do a lot of oh, that. Very nice. I notice a lot of children that I'm hanging out with, and my nephews just are really talking up teal. They just can't stop. I used to really like teal, but I don't don't like don't like to wear it anymore. I still like it, but I think it's just a. I don't like teal. Yeah, children love teal. I don't know no. what's up with that. It's a very strong vibrating tone, I suppose. I don't know. They need to develop their their eyes or something maybe not sure it's also kind of the sea the ocean uh, maybe yeah it reminds me of being eight like that's all i can think there of you go when i think of teal so i have a question for you when do you feel this at-homeness in this concept of like the uncanny and when do you feel the feeling of not at home like what's the most not at home for you in terms of like places in your world that you have, like on your, like throughout the week, like what is the most uncanny and what is the most homed? I mean, it doesn't have to be your home. It can be like, you know, the home can change. Your actual home mm. can like have moments of uncanny or moments of, you know what I mean? I'm trying to think about it. I was like considering it as I was walking around town and I was like, huh. I think the nighttime is always the uncanny. Mm for me yeah i think the uncanny for me also is with so my um you know i have this the lighting in my house is um it's i guess it's smart smart lighting so it's operated i can operate it on my phone but there's also certain routines that are set up mm-hmm. um for it and some of some of them were from my previous relationship or my ex 
set them up. But if you keep forgetting, which I think the uncanniest thing that happens that if, if it's like, you know, it's like 12 a.m. Mm-hmm. Um, and then suddenly and I'm reading and suddenly all the lights go out. Um, that didn't happen every day, um, but or it's in the similar vein, you know, if I'm doing something and all of a sudden all the lights come on or one of the lights comes on. Yeah. So that's that's really just probably the most eerie. And I should really, you know, revisit the settings. But I think I think once it happens and I kind of correct the situation, I sort of yeah. forget about it, and move on until like next Tuesday where something odd happens again. Uh-huh. But it's interesting because there's a reminder that like I know that this one. I think it happens like on Saturday evening or something. I was having a dinner party and um, the light suddenly came on. <laughs> but I remember that it was set up because, you know, like a year ago, like we went camping and, you know, we had the lights come on because we wanted for it to seem that we were home or something, I think. But anyway, it's just, it's funny how that, that is a reminder of a different time and a different place. Yeah. And, and a great conversation piece, of course. I know. When things just appear. Right. A light, a ball of light comes on. Yeah. I guess that's uh, eerie. I was thinking that I've had this thing in New York recently where um, this otherworldly kind of feeling happens. Like it's a ghostly feeling, but it's not really in my home. And I think if it was in my home, I would find it uncanny and disturbing. But um, when I go into really old places in New York that I like, like there are parts in um, Manhattan, Chinatown, where I've been recently and a couple other places where I assume that I know this place really well because I've lived here a long time Mm -hmm. and I've been around it. I've just really been up and down all the different boroughs and I I know this town. And um, so when I like reach into another part of a a neighborhood, so I was in downtown – downtown Manhattan, Chinatown, I thought that it was really small and I was really used to it. And it's a famously intense area that has all this history, all of this like gang warfare mm. and just really interesting, creepy stories that I like to know about it and really interesting entertainment history and all these old Chinese operas there and then mm. all this like intense German beer halls everywhere and just a lot of really weird, interesting things mm. have happened. But then I go the other day, I went into this whole other part of it that's huge and it's way more of a conventional Chinatown. And as I was walking, it was just this almost this mystical kind of spiritual feeling where I felt like I knew where I was walking and I knew I had been there before, but I had never been there before. And I could, it's this very, it's why I live here kind of, where it's like, as I step, it's almost like I'm stepping through the centuries and I'm, Mm. I don't know, stepping in a different way in my own life. It's this feeling of coming home, but also like, it is an uncanny feeling because it feels a bit upside down. Um, And just, I just watch Danger Things. Kind of a place where your imagination crosses with like bits yeah. of history, you know, and with your physical experience. Right. That is a nice feeling. Yeah. yeah. And it's almost like if I saw a ghost out of that, it would be real and it would be like a pleasant experience. And it would be like, of course, this happened right now. It It's a very intense and I feel like it's a spiritual feeling. And I don't know, it's my favorite feeling. And yet it's kind of both a very much a feeling of home and a feeling of the uncanny at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a weirdo. I don't know. But it's real. It does happen to me sometimes. I feel like I did see a ghost once. But I'm, really? I was visiting a friend um, at Oxford and we were walking. It was, you know, late and just this really old architecture. And we turned a corner and I think we saw this. Um, it was, I think, like a woman with a child, mm. you know, holding hands and... Wow. I don't know if we were we were a bit drunk, but we, we felt like we both saw it. <laughs> oh my um, god! Anyway, no, no. Cool. Maybe we did. Maybe we didn't. I was talking about this to uh, my friend at my job today, and she was saying that she used to be a history tour guide. Um, and she was like wearing like an 18th century costume and she's an actress and she was like smoking a cigarette. Oh my goodness. Maybe it was someone like that. Yeah. Outside. She was smoking a cigarette outside of like a cemetery because that was part of the tour that she was giving. Mm. And then she didn't say, and she like put her cigarette out and she kind of walked a little bit down the street. She was on her break, you know, and then people saw her and they looked at her really weird. And then they like walked the other direction. And then she said that, that like a year later, they someone described that moment in a ghost sighting 
Psyched. Oh, that's amazing. And it was her. Yeah, she didn't ever tell anybody, but she was that's like wonderful. very sure that it was her. Oh, that makes me want to try to scare people. I know. Dress up and scare yeah. people. Where can we find such clothes that would make you appear ghostly? Oh, it's not hard. Sure, it's not. Just get enough shares and go out there. Yeah. I mean, so if you ever do see a ghost, make sure it's not like an out-of-work actor that's, you know, on yeah. their break. Okay, like, if that's they're the eating advice. pizza, yeah. it's kind of a giveaway. If they're smoking, what about smoking? Because they feel like smoking, people have been smoking for a long time, you know? Yeah, it's true. That's It's not really a... I feel like a ghost could smoke. Go either way with that one. Inconclusive. And true, like, out-of-work actors look a little ghostly and forlorn, similarly <laughs> to... Uh, I always look forlorn, and I am not an actor. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, artists and ghosts, we're not that different. We're not that different. Close, close call. <laughs> well, what's your, when is your home feeling, though? Oh, uh, I don't know. That's hard for me to answer because I think I've just, because of being an immigrant, maybe, I just, mm. I always have, I struggle with um, right. feeling at home, I think, everywhere. Right. Maybe it's the way of, like, finding comparing the homes i always think it's in the opposite place you know when i'm yeah. here i'm i only think oh maybe i should go to belarus or right. um, somewhere and then when i'm there i i don't, you know i think about maybe i should go to yeah la or maybe i should go to berlin where all the best club memes are made <laughs> <laughs> It's like the Not imagined sure. place. I think I just yeah. have an imagined home. I think that's it. Yeah, I don't have one. So I, I constantly, you know, try them on or I'll travel. And then I kind of imagine living there. But I'm not sure. The grass is always greener on the other side for me, I think. Maybe homier, plushier. We're ending on a, on a slightly wistful note, maybe. I think we are. That's okay. It's a good place to end, I think, in a wistful. Yeah, as we consider yeah. consider your the home and the uncanny and the mall and the not mall. I Out mean, of work ghosts. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, we've got a lot to consider here. Yeah. A lot to center ourselves upon. Maybe in just as a last note, in a pretty unrelated way, but I just remembered it for some reason. So, young Frank Gehry, um, you know, the famous architect who makes the silvery buildings. I just remembered that in his interview, he talked about um, the inspiration for the for the silver fluid forms being his... So his grandparents, um, they owned a little grocery stores and I guess his grandmother would fish out, you know, had this fish tank when she would fish out fishes for customers and it's in, in the kind of movement of the fishes as they were cohabitating in the fish tank is where he found the inspiration for the silvery forms. Mm. Mm -hmm. The home, the fish home. The home of the fishes. I love that. The bourgeois fish tank. The bourgeois fish tank. (laughs) Well, on that note, I guess we'll uh, be back next week with more more opinions. Oh, I think a guest next week. Yes. Yes. All All right. Well, tune in again and follow us on the platforms of Instagram and maybe Twitter and send messages, come visit. (laughs) All right, till next week. Bye-bye. Ciao.